0: So Jay, given the frequency with which Madrox's duplicates go rogue, you'd think he'd have some kind of consistent way of dealing with it. You mean aside from reabsorbing them, right, Miles? That's not always immediately feasible. And of course, it's what most of the dupes who turn on him or run away are trying to avoid, which makes things harder. Yeah, I see your point. Have any of them ever actually succeeded? Either evaded the original permanently or convinced him to let them live out their lives separately? Well,
1: a few of them have been killed before they could be reabsorbed, which I guess would count. Not really what I was going for. But there is actually one who exists as a wholly separate person. He took a whole new name and everything.
0: Does Jamie know about him?
1: Oh yeah, they've come into conflict a few times, but Jamie finally agreed to just let him live out his life, leave him alone.
0: So what does a Madrox dupe do with freedom? Based on what we've seen, I'm guessing deeply morally gray adventures? Maybe some supervillainy? He's an Episcopal priest. What?
1: I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode number 179 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome back to you and us, because we took an involuntary one-week vacation. Whoops.
1: Yeah, we did. Um, I was staying out in rural Connecticut, and there was sort of internet, but there was definitely not enough for us to do the real-time chatting that we need to do to actually record an episode. So we are a week late, and all of my notes on holiday nu- denouement, which are mostly about having seen Love Actually for the first time, are no longer valid, although I, I have now seen Love Actually still.
0: Like, that didn't undo itself. I've never actually seen that movie. I've just seen it referenced like a thousand times. I mean, it's got Alan Rickman in it. Okay, I do like him. He was Nightcrawler. And also that one guy from Josie and the Pussycats, which is a phenomenal underrated movie.
1: Yeah, no, oh God, Josie and the Pussycats is so good. Josie and the Pussycats is definitely better than Love Actually. Although Love Actually is pretty okay. Like, I get why it's sort of the quintessential fuzzy Christmas movie, and I also get why people hate it. And my general feelings are about, about it are that I liked... um one of the, like, seven interlocking couples and, and plot lines, and I, I
0: the rest are just sort of mildly uncomfortable. So it's kind of like reading X-Men in the 90s is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, but it's like reading X-Men in the 90s, except Martin Freeman is a super adorable body double stand-in.
0: Okay, I feel good about that. And I also just realized I was thinking of a different Alan. It was Alan Cumming who was in Josie and the Pussycats, and who was Nightcrawler.
1: Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the greatest
0: of all possible Alans, you know, Hans Gruber. He is a pretty excellent Alan, good point. Well, Alans, I think, aside, we are very excited about the episode we have for you today, and we're supposed to have for you last week, but now we have it for you.
1: And the Alans aside comments is how you can
0: tell it's not going to be an Excalibur episode. Exactly. This, in fact, is X-Factor, but not X-Factor like we have known it. X-Factor, the original five X-Men doing their thing, living in a skyscraper in Manhattan. Yeah, that's all done.
1: Yeah, this is uncomfortable
0: government shills X Factor, or one of the best errors of the team. It really, really is. So we've referenced a, this a number of times before, and in fact, we saw the buildup to this in the Muir Island saga when Val Cooper recruited a few different mutants to start a new version of what was basically Freedom Force, the government-sponsored mutant team. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about the book in general.
1: The incoming writer on this title is Peter David, who's written a few one-offs around the X universe previously. This is his first ongoing in that universe, but he would be, would have been very well known to Marvel fans at this point for his very, very long run on The Incredible hulk he is also a writer whose name has come up in recent years around some incredibly incredibly racist comments he made at a convention that led to a long discussion and has sort of been resolved but it's something maybe worth googling and it's something that that definitely puts some of the later stuff we're going to be looking at in this title in a less comfortable perspective than well it was the time so, yeah, that's probably something we're going to be coming back to. In the meantime, though, here we are. And this is this is also, interestingly enough, this is one of two X factors that might have been the other one. Not, not Peter Davids was actually pitched by Eric Larson, Savage Dragon creator and Image co-founder Eric Larson.
0: Right. And... His team would have been a little bit different than the one we see here. Havoc and Polaris were still going to be there, but Polaris would not have gotten her magnetic powers back. She would still have the super strength she got from Zaladane. Sort of. I'm still confused by that whole thing. We would also have Pyro, a cyborg version of Crimson Commando, which, of course, came out of the Killing Stroke story in those Kings of Pain annuals where Crimson Commando was severely injured, and a new Morlock girl named Horridus. which, I gotta say, that's a really great name. I don't know why you would name your, your kid Horridus, or if it was just like a chosen name, because she was a Morlock and she was like, well, if I'm ugly, I should go by that name, but I love it. That would also be a really good name for a pet parakeet. Yeah, I got it, really would. Okay, well, I hate birds, but if I ever get any, I'm going to name them Horridus. Everyone, no matter how many I get. Anyway, Larson's proposal
1: fell through, and he ended up using his design for Crimson Commando as well as his design for uh, Horridus
0: in his creator owned image title, Freak Force. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, that would have been a bizarre, interesting take on X-Factor, but I gotta say, Peter David's run on X-Factor is a ton of fun, so I think it worked out.
1: Yeah, I really like this team, and I gotta say, you know, for everyone who has talked about, you know, I like Havoc, why are you so mean to him? This title is absolutely for you. This title is where, like, 99% of my affection for Havoc comes from. It's such a good book, and it's such a fresh take on so many of the characters, But before we talk about that, I want to talk about the art. Because while my feelings about Peter David are somewhat mixed, my feelings about Larry Stroman are just unambiguously and unmitigatedly positive. Larry Stroman is fucking amazing.
0: He really is. And it's interesting for me coming back to this, having initially read these comics as they came out, I think um, the issue after the ones we're going to be covering today was the first one I ever bought of this run, because at the time... I didn't really get Stroman. Like, his art is just so loose and uh, expressionistic, I guess. And for me, like, it didn't look, you know, real and muscly the way Jim Lee's stuff did. And now I like it so much more than I like that traditional 90s house style.
1: Yeah. I, on the other hand, came to this, you know, later and in college, and I got to this just as I was getting turned off from the art in the rest of the runs. I talked about that a lot, I think, uh, last episode on our, our, our holiday special and sort of my feelings about Jim Lee's art. But... This title, like, I, I saw Larry Stroman stuff, and I was sold. Like, there are panels, there are details in panels that I still remember from my first read-through. And this was before I paid super close attention to the art and comics. Like, that's how hard it stuck with me. I actually have one of one of my sort of major oh-my-god moments in my Cyclops Has a Good Day sketchbook is there is one Havoc in that sketchbook, and it is by Larry Stroman, because when you can get Larry Stroman to draw Havoc, you get Larry Stroman to draw Havoc.
0: <laughs> that makes perfect sense to me, Yeah. So unfortunately, Strowman's only going to stick around in the book for like 11 issues. I remembered Strowman and David having gone on forever, but in fact, they don't.
1: That's still about a year, and that's still honestly a pretty substantial tenure, at least
0: by modern standards. True, yeah, if we're looking at it by modern standards, Mm -hmm. very much so. So one thing that interests me about this book is... It's been completely reinvented. Like, for the first 70 issues of X-Factor, like we said, it was the original five X-Men doing their thing, and now it's not even the same premise. Now it's a government-sponsored team. I guess the main similarity is that they're both publicly known teams.
1: It is so weird to me, given that, that this book didn't get a relaunch, that it didn't get a new number one, because it's basically a new series starting with the first issue we're looking at today.
0: And that's especially interesting in the context of what we'll be covering in a couple of episodes, which is X-Force. I mean, New Mutants, it still has some continuity with X-Force. We still have a few of the same characters in the same basic premise, and yet that got a new number one, and this one doesn't. I'm sure there was some kind of decision there. I'm sure there were many reasons for it. They baffle me, I don't know, but, eh, you know, whatever. I'm fine with it.
1: Yeah, I actually considered when we went into this whether we should just look at this as, a new volume and and give it separate numbering in addition to the ongoing numbering as we're discussing it, because it really is a different series. It's got the same title, it's got the same numbering, but that's all.
0: Seriously. But given that it does basically start from scratch, I vote we begin with a... Previously on Not Exactly X Factor.
1: Well... We're not going to look at previously on Actually X Factor because that's about the old team. But previously in a number of other X books, the government hired a handful of mutants from Mystique's incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and also the murder grandpas who were
0: hunting humans for sport in, I think, upstate New York. Their boss was Dr. Valerie Cooper, the special advisor to the president on superhuman and mutant affairs and a total badass.
1: That team was called Freedom Force, and they were jerks working primarily to uphold jerk laws despite having occasional moments of sympathy. Unfortunately, they all quit, got killed, or got captured by someone else, and so now Val Cooper is forming a brand new team, which
0: is where our X Factor comes in. So who's going to be on that team? Well, their leader is going to be Havoc, Alex Summers, Cyclops' brother. He's got plasma blasts, he just wants to be a geologist, but keeps getting pulled into superhero stuff. He's currently helping mutants in the anti-mutination of Genosha after it was nearly destroyed during the Extinction Agenda.
1: And he's doing this because he spent a while on the side of the oppressive forces in Genosha after falling through the siege perilous and losing his memory. As, you know, happens. It's complicated to be Havoc, but the really important thing here is that he still has not finished his dissertation.
0: Exactly. And you know who else has not finished her
1: dissertation? Ooh, I know this one. You are talking about Polaris, Lorna Dane. This is Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter, mistress of magnetism. She's got sweet green hair. She spent a long time possessed by malice, for a while lost her powers and got super buff and kind of evil, was manipulated by the Shadow King, and then got her original powers back and lost the upgraded powers, but still has the red green hair.
0: Exactly. Then we also have Wolfsbane. Now, this would be surprising. I mean, she was a member of the New Mutant. She never had anything to do with the government. But a person she did have to do with was Havoc. She was bonded to him in Genosha when she was genetically re-engineered to be a mindless mutate, as opposed to the werewolf lady that she was before. She's religious and repressed, but also compassionate and idealistic, and I like her a lot. Right now, she can't go into her full human form or else she goes back to her mindless mutate state because Genosian science is super shitty and we don't like it.
1: Making up the majority of the team, we have multiple man, Jamie Madrox. Uh, Jamie Madrox duplicates himself, including his clothing, bizarrely, creating perfect clones on impact. Well, somewhat perfect. They've got most of his personality, but occasionally their own proclivities and, you know, hopes, dreams, goals, inclinations, etc., Which can get sticky. Jamie is the longtime assistant of Dr. Moira McTaggart and spent a while having a wacky adventures with the Fallen Angels, although that technically turned out to be a dupe. He is a goofy, friendly guy with a goofy, friendly agenda and not a lot of
0: history on superhero teams. Speaking of characters without much history on superhero teams, we have Guido Carosella, the soon-to-be-named Strong Guy. He's a really big dude and very, very strong, as his codename would suggest. His powers are kind of ambiguous at this point. We'll learn more about them. He's the former bodyguard of intergalactic rock star Lila Shaney, which is the first time we met him in her employ. He is also funny, like Madrox, but a different kind. He's mostly bald, he's got perpetual sunglasses, and for me, he is kind of the heart of this incarnation of the book.
1: You've got kind of an inversion of the perpetual shades and hair going here. So perpetual shades and lack of hair?
0: Oh man, bringing it back to one of the incarnations of the Resident Evil 1 instruction manual. Nice. The rest of you can look it up later.
1: Finally, on the team is the resident asshole. That is Quicksilver, Pietro Maximoff, Magneto's on-again, off-again son. He is a super speedster, and he is the current ex of the Inhuman Crystal with whom he has one child, a mutant named Luna. He is delightfully
0: arrogant, and he is better than you. Or at least thinks he is. He's kind of Land Namor. He kind of is Land Namor. Have he and Namor ever hung out? Would they just, like, snark at each other until they annihilated?
1: I told you about my idea for a team that's Namor, Quicksilver, and Northstar, right?
0: Oh, you did mention that. Yeah, that would be kind of beautiful. I mean, I don't think they would actually get anything done, but it would be great.
1: The only people they would hate more than you would be each other.
0: I love everything about this. But yeah, there's our cast. And like you said, G, this is really a grab bag. Like, I know these are the mutants who were left over after the blue and the gold teams formed. But it's a random assortment of characters. Most of them don't know each other. And this should not have worked. And yet it totally, totally does. There's a reason for that.
1: I've talked before about sitcom X Factor and how, well, not really exactly a sitcom, but how I would I would like a, you know, TV shorts comedy workplace drama version of the original X Factor with with Cameron Hodge and all of the evil plots and stuff. This is actually sitcom X-Factor. This X-Factor X feels like an early 90s sitcom in so many ways. David's dialogue is a huge part of that, but the thrown-together cast is another pretty significant component, as are the
0: storylines and a lot of the functional pacing. Well, speaking of the sitcom feel of the book, I think that's as good a segue as any to dive into X-Factor number 71, Cutting the Mustard
1: which opens with a really extended do-you-have-any-great-poupon joke, because of course it does.
0: That's, you know, what do you think of Peter David's dialogue? I personally love it, and I think part of why it works for me, even though it's very much like that sure is Peter David, just like that sure is Joss Whedon or that sure is Brian Bendis, part of why it works for me is that this cast of characters is largely undefined. I mean, they'd been around for a while, but nobody had ever really focused too much on who they were as people, on what their voices were like. And so for me, it's not so much that David's writing style overwrites the characters as that David's writing style helps define these characters.
1: It does to an extent. I think, I you know, Bendis is a really good point of comparison because they have similar strengths and weakness. in the that when they get character voices, when they actually grasp them and start writing them, they tend to be very strong, but they've also got a very specific tone themselves that occasionally overwrites that. You know, with with Bendis, it's different, but David, I would just describe, you know, there are points where the comic, and especially the dialogue, is more glib than good.
0: I mean, I can see that. And for me, because it's a sitcom, like, I'm totally able to forgive that, but your mileage may certainly vary.
1: I have trouble with that for one main reason, which is that It's not always the case. Again, as with Bendis, there are points where my character's voices come through really strongly and really well and really interestingly. So when it just becomes this, you know, banter TM mode, it, it feels like a departure from something that's working really well. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the banter and I actually love a lot of the team dynamic that comes out of
0: it. I just like to see a little more of that consistency follow through with it. Well, that's fair enough. And certainly we'll see it work better and worse. And we have lots of quotes for you as the episode goes on. But for right now, the characters who are present, who are Guido, Lorna, and Jamie Madrox, are all talking about the setup of the team, trying to get a jar of mayonnaise open and utterly failing. And Polaris points out she's really nervous about seeing Havoc again. He's going to be the leader of the team, but it's been ages since they could just be normal people together, specifically since Uncanny X-Men number 218 when they saw a shark fall from the sky.
1: Man, it has been a while, and it's, it's been rough, and she spent a lot of that interim time possessed by malice. I should say about the mayo jar, this, this entire issue is built around the gag of no one being able to open this jar of mayonnaise until Val Cooper gets there and is finally able to. And it turns out it's going to turn out to have been an extended practical joke set up by Jamie Madrox. We're just telling you now because the payoff really only works in the visual format. And this way we don't have to revisit. And they try to open the mayonnaise. And they try to open the mayonnaise. So you just got to imagine that every time we introduce
0: a character, they're going to try and fail to open a jar of mayonnaise. Exactly. But not only is this our intro to the characters, it's also our intro to how Strowman draws them. And this is so good. Like his style is clean and angular and exaggerated. He's like a late 1980s Rick Leonardi done right.
1: I want to say right here that much as I love Havoc, much as I love every member of this lineup, Polaris's hair is my favorite member of X Factor.
0: Right, I was surprised by that, because it seems in some ways to be a clear downgrade from her hair when she was possessed by Malice, when it was like she got Wolverine's hair and then just decided to multiply it by a factor of 10.
1: It's not about the hairstyle, it's about the art style. She could have that hair, and it would still be my favorite. The way Strowman draws it is so cool, and so distinctive, and so strong. Like, he's one of those artists who I can actually just identify by the way he draws hair, along with Walter Simonson and Ellen Davis.
0: Totally, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the object of Lorna's consternation slash affection, Havoc. He is in Genosha. And by the way, this does in fact take place before X-Men Volume 2, number one. We checked. That's why he's not there in X-Men, so it does make sense.
1: We didn't have to check. There's a very small footnote on the first page he appears saying this, which it has to. And it's, it's, uh whatever. That timeline is iffy. So Havoc is working construction he's working on the reconstruction of genosha and he's doing it at the ground level he's not really he doesn't seem to be involved particularly in the organization or in the the new government he's just kind of carrying girders around and occasionally blasting them out of the sky to keep people from getting smashed by them in what may or may not be a deliberate callback
0: to cyclops's origin story i gotta say like those summers kids just cannot get a break when it comes to girders honestly most people in comics can't get a break like basically if there's a construction site just stay on the other side of town from it it is not safe Absolutely.
1: So Val Cooper is there to try to get Alex to come join and lead X Factor. And Alex is not interested. So Val calls in the big gun. She has Cyclops and Xavier show up and try to talk him into it. And working with Alex is Rain, who's been around and, and again, helping with the Genocean reconstruction after herself being kidnapped and turned into a mutate. And I want to focus here on the conversation that Alex has with Scott and Professor X because if you have been reading X-Books for maybe the last four or so years, this is gonna strike you as a little bit different from the havoc you're used to seeing on some very specific points.
0: As Xavier tells Alex about all the various benefits of being part of the public face of mutant kind, of being a positive force for change in a publicly acceptable venue, Alex replies, They want window dressing. Nice, polite,
1: cuddly mutants to take heat in difficult situations. Government muties. I'd be a smiling front man and, and and Uncle Atomic.
0: Okay, that's actually really good wordplay. Of course, that's referring to Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's a, nice, it's a nice little reference. David does that pretty well. But yeah, this is a different Havoc than the one we saw giving the M-word speech years and years later.
1: That's gonna come up in this arc, too. It is amazing how differently those read and also how tone-deaf that reads in context of this. But
0: remember when Havoc had principles? I do. It was nice. But Professor Xavier does eventually sell Alex on taking the job, especially once he mentions that Lorna Dane, Polaris, is going to be there too.
1: God! Yeah, remember when Havoc had principles for like 10 whole minutes before someone mentioned a girl he had a crush on?
0: Hey, at least this one has green hair, not red hair, so maybe it'll work out a little better this time. But I also want to talk a little about the reunion between Wolfsbane and Professor Xavier because I hadn't realized she hadn't actually seen Xavier since New Mutants number 51 way back in the day. And just... In an arc that's really not going to be very kind to Spain, like she's in a real rough spot throughout this entire thing, seeing that moment of just unbridled joy and happiness was really nice. Rain decides that if if Alex is going, she's
1: going to go. And they all head back to Washington, D.C. And on the plane have a moment that we've actually discussed on the podcast before where Val briefly mentions that Dale Cooper is her brother. She She doesn't mention him by name, but she makes it very clear. And it's not the first, but it's one of a ludicrous number of pop culture references that are going to be jammed into this book. If anyone ever wants to take an X book and just pull it out in amber of its cultural context and date it exactly just from what's on the page, this is going to be the series to do this with. This is, this is, man, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last place I saw this many pop culture references in, in one place. And honestly, I got nothing.
0: Welcome to late 1991, listeners. Hope you survived the experience.
1: Meanwhile in Washington, another potential team member has arrived. This is Quicksilver, and he is traveling with the big inhuman dog Lockjaw. And Quicksilver being Quicksilver has a snarky aside right from the start.
0: Well done, Lockjaw. You have indeed transported us to the nation's capital. It's perfectly evident. The air fairly reeks of sanctimoniousness.
1: Now, Quicksilver is trying to get to X-Factor headquarters. He's asking directions. He's getting increasingly impatient. And he takes a brief diversion to go deal with a bomb threat at um, evil corporation Roxxon. He finds and disassembles the bomb, finally gets directions to X-Factor headquarters. And when he gets there, promptly collapses because Quicksilver is in trouble, like more than usual.
0: And he shows off the reason he came to DC in the first place. It's a postcard, and I love this postcard. Dear Mr. Silver,
1: ha ha, I have turned your power against you. You'll never find me. Sincerely, an evil individual.
0: I mean, okay, yes, Peter David's writing style can overpower the plot, but sometimes it's just perfect, and this is one of those times.
1: That is also absolutely the best way to sign any kind of anonymous missive, even if it's positive. Like, when you write to a restaurant to say, you know, I got fantastic service, you don't pay your servers enough, sign it, sincerely, an evil individual.
0: Well, it's like that caption from the X-Men at the Texas State Fair comic that you can just use everywhere. Many beguiling lies later. (laughs) Sincerely, an evil individual. There we go. There's your entire correspondence. You don't need anything else. So, at this point, Havoc and Wolfsbane and Val Cooper show up at the apartment, and Rain is immediately jealous of Alex and Lorna's reunion. This is totally going to be a thing, and I have mixed feelings about this. It does make for very good plotting. I mean, the fact that Wolfsbane is kind of genetically bonded to Havoc, that she has a crush on him whether she wants to or not, that's interesting stuff, but she's also really young, so that makes it pretty uncomfortable.
1: It would make it extremely uncomfortable if it were at all reciprocal, which it's not. That helps so I have mixed feelings about this plot line, but it does feel really in character to me because Rain is someone we've seen for a long time handle romantic infatuation really badly and awkwardly. In a lot of ways, socially, she's kind of immature. She was raised in a very isolated environment and basically told that she was evil and that all of this stuff, and especially anything she wanted, was evil for a very long time. She has a very weird and very uncomfortable and very poorly developed and not wildly self-aware relationship with her own desires and especially her own romantic interests. And that's something we're going to see consistently with the character for decades. I mean, that's that's playing out. We saw that a bunch in New Mutants, and we're going to see that continue through other titles and other appearances. I'm specifically thinking in uh, New Mutants Academy X. But yeah, I mean, for me, this 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 reads pretty consistently. And by making it very explicitly one-sided, I think David and Stroman dodge what would otherwise, yeah, be a really inappropriate relationship to to portray.
0: And that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I like that we're getting to see this different side of Spain that's not coming out of nowhere. Like, like you said, the antecedents were totally there. But that we're getting to see her be something other than the innocent, demure, constantly protesting character. Like, she's going through real character growth, and that's what we want over time for our characters.
1: And again, that's consistent with her previous portrayal. Something we saw again and again in New Mutants is that when Rain's worldview gets shaken up or shattered, which it happens very, very consistently because, again, it's built on a very shaky foundation, she doesn't have a really solid sense of how to react. And so she tends to shoot off in kind of
0: extreme directions. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, speaking of shooting off in extreme directions, Havoc tries to open the mayo jar with his plasma blasts and fails, at which point Val, like you said, Jay, just wraps it against the wall, opens it, and smirks. We find out, after they've all left, that Madrox has engineered
1: a fancy remote-control mayo jar so he could pull this off, but he doesn't get to revel in his victory for very long because there's a knock at his door, and he opens it and is promptly shot and killed.
0: So that's a hell of a way to end your first issue, and the second one has a title that's pretty appropriate to that, Multiple Homicide.
1: I was gonna say, if you're gonna kill a character and you really want it to have have impact, you probably should go for one for whom the first thought isn't, well, it's okay, we've got spares.
0: It's true, it's true, although it has been established that if you kill Madrox Prime, if you kill the central official real Madrox, he is indeed fully dead. But a bunch of reporters show up where Madrox has fallen five stories to the ground after getting shot. And it's mentioned by a reporter that he was house-sitting for Albert Rosenfeld, which is one letter off of Albert from Twin Peaks. That's our second Twin Peaks reference in as many issues after Dale Cooper.
1: I do not see Madrox as the member of X Factor
0: who Albert from Twin Peaks would be friends with. I feel... Well, actually, that brings up a good question. Who would he be friends with? We we know Albert has that sort of heart of gold underneath the star-snarky exterior. Like, you would think Quicksilver, but he would see that Quicksilver was just sort of a real jerk. Maybe Havoc? I don't know. I I really don't think he'd like any of them. Maybe... (laughs) That may be true. Maybe
1: he'd be sympathetic to Rain. I could see him and Polaris having sort of a testy but mutually respectful professional relationship in some context or other. Maybe in like a real alternate universe where she gets into forensic geomorphology or something. But I really don't see Albert as being a wildly pro-X-Factor guy. Maybe Val Cooper, because obviously she knows everyone.
0: (laughs) Pretty much that. Well, uh, Val Cooper herself and a very cold Pietro, whose only commentary is, must have been a slow news night, head off to tell X-Factor the bad news.
1: So the rest of the team is working out while Guido gets a massage back at his place. And we, we learn a little bit here about Guido's background. Specifically, his parents were spendthrifts, and they were crushed by a falling satellite after, after spending their entire lives, you know, denying themselves so they could save up. And Guido decided he was just going to get what he wanted, when he wanted it, and spend his way through everything. He went through most of his savings and most of the settlement from the satellite company after his parents' death very quickly. Got a job with Lila, but but she's off doing something else now, so now he's working with X-Factor primarily for the paycheck.
0: Well, they all head off to the murder scene, and we get some very Peter David dialogue, as Havoc says. It's Jamie, all
1: right. And a bystander comments. You know this guy? No, Einstein. My hobby is looking at random dead bodies and saying, it's Jamie, all right.
0: Oh, well, it beats collecting comics.
1: Oh, for fuck's sake, Peter David. Like, this is charming but kind of awful at the same time, and I'm not quite sure where I come down on the subject. It reads like we're getting a sequence of little weird comedy sketches throughout.
0: On the one hand, I mean, like you said, this is Jamie Madrox, and anyone familiar with the character knows that he's probably fine. But meanwhile, from afar, in one of my favorite pointless storylines, a pale scientist type watches over video screens and vows to destroy all mutants.
1: Okay, I grump about Peter David, but this is actually one of the best running jokes in any superhero comic ever. This is Professor Vic Chalker, and he spends the entire first arc of X-Factor trying to create, and successfully creating, a robot suit that will let him take them on and take them down. He never quite gets it operational. He, I believe, suffocates inside it toward the end of this arc. He's never actually going to come into contact with the team. It's just this little red herring background thread. And it's kind of in questionable taste, but it's really funny. And it fits the tone of the book well. And it does a really good job kind of offsetting the main plot, which has silly elements, but is
0: also kind of fucked up. And in that fucked-up main plot, all of the characters are vowing vengeance. Even Pietro actually gives a shit about somebody. They all, one by one, talk about how they make sure this wrong is going to be righted, including Madrox. He says so, too.
1: Yeah, who shows up toward the end just to join in and tell them about how angry he is. And they are, of course, all shocked. Most of all, Lorna, who's actually friends with him outside of of X-Factor. And as it turns out, Madrox didn't know who was coming, so he sent a dupe to answer the door, and the dupe was who was killed. Simple explanation, kind of, maybe. Reads a little weird to me, but I guess that works. And he figures now he'll go reabsorb the dupe,
0: but he can't bring himself to do it. You can't be separate from me. You're as independent as a toenail clipping. Come on, come on. Wake up, wake up, be alive, be
1: alive. You know, on one hand, dude, given your powers, you should be used to this. On the other hand, I could see seeing yourself dead for the first time being a bit uncomfortable um as val succinctly and obnoxiously puts it to a reporter he wasn't hysterical he was beside himself oh i was gonna suggest that we we get matt to put in canned laughter at appropriate moments in this episode because again it feels really sitcomy but i feel like that would end up being about
0: half the episode it really would but the gathered crowd who's looking over this not exactly a murder scene is amazing. So Larry Stroman does this sometimes. Like in this crowd, there's a lady with bunny slippers and a pink brimmed top hat. There's a big chef. There's a guy with pink pants and an Odie shirt and suspenders and a fedora. All these people with all kinds of proportions and all kinds of outfits and all kind of, kinds of colors. And it's so much fun.
1: So we mentioned Stroman's sort of loose humanistic style. And there's a cartooniness to the way he draws people and especially extras that reminds me very, very much of Kyle Baker.
0: Oh, God, I can totally see that. Like, looking at, I don't know, not why I hate Saturn so much as you are here. That's the one it really reminds me of. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. Totally.
1: It also reminds me a little bit of the the always amazing extras in X-Men, the animated series who occasionally wander past in the background.
0: I love them so much. Well, more shadowy figures are watching this whole scene from afar... Apparently, all of this has been part of a fiendish plan. First, Quicksilver has been assaulted, then Madrox. One of the figures is impatient, but the other tells him, "'Patience, my friend,' or in the words of the philosopher, "'Don't have a cow, man.'"
1: Mr. Sinister is quoting The Simpsons now. This is one of those points where I have trouble with Peter David, where it feels like, the yep, your your gag has entirely overwritten any pretense of this
0: comic having any kind of internal logic. I don't know about that, because one of Mr. Sinister's defining traits is that he's smug. And if you're going to be smug, one way to enact that smugness, one way to smugify yourself into the world, is to trivialize serious situations. And making a Simpsons reference when somebody's just been shot to death, I feel like he might do that. I
1: disagree strongly with you there. Mr. Sinister is smug, yes, but his smugness is very specifically arch. Hmm.
0: Okay, so you think this is a little too lowbrow and he would go more highbrow.
1: Yeah, I think Mr. Sinister would be about at least the illusion of high culture, especially when he's in an era where he's working with the Nasty Boys and so trying to establish himself as the legitimate and high culture figure relative to their, you know,
0: Nasty Boys their nasty boyness, well, X Factor is delivering a press conference. They are uh, exposing themselves to the world. I mean, not like that. Well, maybe like that. It is Peter David.
1: I was going to say, if there is an iteration of X Factor most likely to end up naked on television, it would definitely be this one. They take a lot of pratfalls.
0: Well, as they prepare, as they talk about what they're going to tell the public about, Guido says that he can press 20 tons, at which point Lorna says that she can press pants or an attack or a point. Like, the sitcom dialogue here is just back and forth and back and forth. It's lightning fast, and I love it.
1: Uh, Quicksilver, meanwhile, is burning through books. He's reading super fast. Despite the word of the evil individual, you know, he, he thinks that his powers are basically gradually killing him, that he, he's still reading super fast because, as he says—
0: I have to do something at an accelerated rate. Otherwise, I'd be ordinary and would probably want to kill myself.
1: I mentioned that this is a good series to read if you like Havoc and you want Havoc character development. This is also the series that made Quicksilver sympathetic and interesting, at least for me. I gather that he's appeared in other books and, and, and might have developed personality in those, but as, as primarily an X-Books fan, like, this was the one that started me taking him seriously as a character. He's still an unabashed asshole, but he's a much more
0: interesting and sympathetic one once you've gotten through David's run. Right. So as the press conference preparation continues, Alex heads off and Lorna follows him, asking him, so where are they? Has he been avoiding her? I mean, they're on the same team now, but he's barely had a conversation with her.
1: Yeah, and I gotta say, I'm team Alex here. Lorna's assumption that they could just pick up where they left off after... All of the things that have happened. I mean, this is kind of a lot. And Alex specifically has had a series of really horrifically unpleasant romantic arcs in the meantime, starting with Madeline Pryor.
0: Right. And ending with two separate red-haired spies. I mean, technically, that's sort of three red-haired spies in a row. Yeah, yeah, good point. But they do manage to reconcile. They decide they're just gonna start over. They start talking about their favorite books, their favorite movies, and that rebonding is cemented when they go rescue some people from a conveniently burning building. Rain is watching from afar, getting in on the typically supervillain monopolized game, continuing to be the saddest, most sympathetic stalker.
1: Oh, Rain, don't make these choices. Now, the press conference comes next. They get back in time for that, and val introduces these this 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 new x factors the successors to the the unstable freedom force like these guys are the real heroes they're going to do fine wow i love that she put this group together as like the stable team
0: i'm trying to think of any of them who are even remotely i mean no no none of them none of them are even remotely stable
1: strong guy strong guy is actually fairly stable but he doesn't give a fuck so he's still a wild card within this context. As he demonstrates immediately by choosing a code name, he hasn't had one, and, and Lorna insists that he has to. So at the last minute, he decides he's gonna be strong guy. That's him, that's his code name. And that is his code name for the next decades. Like it sticks. I love that because my favorite code name in the X universe.
0: It's pretty wonderful, yeah. We're also introduced to X Factors costumes and I really like these costumes. They're like these sort of black leather with yellow chest panels and big X logos kind of deals. They, they look pretty damn sharp.
1: They kind of feel like the spiritual predecessors to Frank Quitely's designs.
0: You know, I've never thought of that, but I think you're right. It's got a similar kind of feel. But I think most importantly, they look like uniforms. X-Factor is designed to be a team presented to the public as an organized, deliberate, safe, orderly team. And so having uniforms works. It also works that Quicksilver just doesn't give a shit and just wears his usual blue jumpsuit with a white lightning bolt.
1: Now, they get through a few rounds of questions. Alex makes an impassioned speech, but the press conference is interrupted from an unexpected quarter. In fact, the same source of our previous unexpected interruption at a high drama moment, Jamie Madrox, who emerges from the audience wanting to know who the imposter on
0: the team pretending to be him is. I love it. So, Wolfsbane smells both of them as real. They can't both be clones, can they? Yeah, they totally can. It's Madrox. Everyone's a clone. Right, but usually there's a prime Madrox, so having two primes, that's pretty weird. Now, as all of this is going on, there's a dude heading in the direction of the press conference, just in his car, a random guy in a random Larry Stroman-esque green polka-dotted suit, listening to the new Weird Al song on the radio, Multiple Man, Multiple man, multiple man, doing the things a multiple can. What's he like? It's not important. Multiple man. Is he a lot or is he alone? A super clown or a super clone? His own beginning and his own end, his own best friend. Multiple man. Because that's the kind of writer Peter David is.
1: I like the Squirrel Girl one better.
0: Okay, that's pretty good. But I do love that David just takes, like, an entire half page to do a silly little song parody. And I also love that this musical interlude is interrupted by two Jamie Madroxes smashing into the windshield of the car in question because there's a great big multi-Madrox fight going on because, of course, there is.
1: Now, the delightful thing about Jamie Madrox, one of the delightful things about Jamie Madrox, but the reason that his powers are custom-made for gag fights is that the more you hit him— the more he duplicates, which means that two Madrox is slugging it out, quickly turn into four, turn into eight, turn into 16, and so on and so forth and onward until you've basically just got pages of, of solid Madrox brawls. And I really wish, did they at any point do like a big, ridiculous Where's Waldo page with a ton of dupes where you're supposed to find the real Madrox?
0: I, I was actually just thinking that. This is the anti Where's Waldo in a way, which is glorious.
1: No, no, because the last page of the Waldo books is always the scene where there's like a zillion Waldos and you have to find the one real one because he's missing a shoe.
0: I gotta say, my brain just goes one place with this. Well, okay, two places. One is Where's Waldo, and the other is... So what's sex with Jamie Madrox like? Does he just keep duplicating as the encounter goes on? Does he have to be really, really gentle, lest it turn into a threesome, and then a foursome, and then a fivesome? Like, what's the deal? There's actually a Tenacious D song about this. Well, anyway, also, Flavor Flav is in the crowd for some reason, because Larry Stroman. Now... Much of the rest of this issue is just Jamie's fighting Jamie's and it's fucking hilarious. One of my favorite things is what happens first, which is one of the Jamie's following another Jamie into the Smithsonian's Jim Henson display and Kermit the Frog just shows up and offers to help. Before the other Jamie's hand inside the Kermit puppet punches the first Jamie who was being offered the help. It's just so fucking goofy, and I love it. One
1: of the things I really like about David on this, and one of the things we're going to see consistently in his portrayals of Madrox for, for years and years after this in different different iterations of X Factor, is that Jamie's dupes, even when they're evil, even when they're very different, different from Jamie, are still kind of Jamie.
0: Exactly. They all have that same goofy sense of humor.
1: We also get a scene where bystanders mistake Jamie for the Rocketeer um, going on about how, how he looks just like him. So for those of you who are looking for a reason James Franco shouldn't be cast in this role or otherwise trying to get a real person point of reference for what Jamie Madrox looks like canonically, he looks like Bill Campbell.
0: That's also an interesting connection because Peter David wrote the novelization of the movie, The Rocketeer. So there you have it.
1: It's like one of those serial killer red string maps, but it's just pop culture and comics and everyone's involved in everything and no one gets murdered.
0: Next up, the Madrox's Madrox their way to the Air and Space Museum, where one throws a model of the Starship Enterprise at another.
1: And the two of them go off on a tangent. I, You know, something I really like about this, I I, I complain about the sitcom thing and the, the David dialogue. I love the pacing of early X Factor because it just shoots off on these weird little tangents and then makes its way back. And it's fun and it's very, very, very different from anything we've seen on an
0: X book previously. Agreed, yeah. Like, we've seen comedy in Excalibur, certainly, but that's more like adventure comedy. That's more, this is an action book and a soap opera, and it's just funny while it does those things. And X Factor, I think, is a comedy first and foremost. It's a very, very different type of comedy. X Factor plays out bits,
1: and Excalibur is is a much more sort of
0: long-running farce. Exactly. Well, Havoc has a plan for how to deal with this farce. He figures, all right, if we have two originals, if we have somehow two Jamie Primes, then if they get knocked unconscious, maybe all the clones will vanish. The solution to this scenario is just to punch
1: every nearby Jamie Madrox. Quicksilver is, of course, elated at this.
0: You mean you wanted to knock out anyone who looks like Jamie Madrox? That's right, Pietro. Oh, good. Shut up, Pietro. But it does, in fact, work. There are just two left, on the ground, unconscious. And one of the things that interests me about this, I don't even know if you would call it a fight, but as we see Havoc and Quicksilver and everyone subdue the Madroxes, we see Havoc use his plasma blasts. And this is very different from how they've been portrayed before, because in the past, Havoc's plasma blasts are these, like, beams of unstoppable annihilation. I mean, they just burn their way through everything in their
1: path. Yeah, and they've been drawn pretty consistently. Like, the concentric circle format pretty much always has been there. And this is this is the first really significant
0: deviation from that, isn't it? Right, because as Havoc uses them almost as bludgeoning instruments, we see just this yellow background with random black circles within it. It's a different feel. It's apparently a different effect. And I kind of dig it. I kind of dig that Havoc has a little bit more nuance, that he's not just mopey, I want to blow up the universe guy. He has a bit more control.
1: Yeah, how Havoc's powers work is perpetually nebulous. We talk about Cyclops' powers being inconsistent, and all of that goes about quadruple for Havocs, because how they work, whether they generate heat, how much he can direct them, varies almost arbitrarily according to the demands of the plot and according to what kind of technology he is sporting to help him regulate his powers and whether he needs it. That's wildly and spectacularly inconsistent and even more so given that we have slightly more precise descriptions of Havoc's powers at various times from which the comic then cheerfully deviates so what what do you think about about this this new phase of Havok's powers
0: I think it works. I mean, X-Factor's a book where the type of angst that comes with being an engine of unstoppable destruction I don't think would fit very well. Like, if you have characters that are just moping all the time, they're not going to have time to be clever or funny or honestly have, you know, romance or positive character development. Those are all things that Havoc has largely been missing. I mean, aside from the Madeline Pryor nonsense, and it's nice to see him get a chance. I think part of that is the power change.
1: Ah, you're coming at this from a very different direction than I was. I was thinking specifically of the fact that I miss those Neil Adams concentric
0: circles. Okay, that's entirely legit. But meanwhile, at the worst press conference ever, you know, SX Factor has been introduced as the more stable equivalent of Freedom Force and promptly has proven themselves not to be, a reporter interviews Guido Carousella.
1: And Guido Carousella provides us with something, a speech that is going to sound very familiar to those of you who read the um, Uncanny Avengers series a few years back. Guido is sick of the word mutant. He feels that it is derogatory and that it's inappropriate and has been turned into a slur. He doesn't think it should be used anymore. Specifically, he would like people to adopt the term genetically challenged, GCs for short. Now, Guido is just doing this to fuck with people because, again, Guido doesn't care. Guido is just here for the paycheck, and he's just here to kind of occasionally engage in in large-scale practical jokes. But it catches on, and it's a running gag for a lot of early X factor.
0: This is interesting to me because back in the early 90s, political correctness was first starting to be a thing. I mean, obviously, it's taken on so much different connotations in recent years, both positive and negative. But this was Peter David analyzing, you know, the culture that was right outside his window between this and Guido talking about how he's a sensitive 90s guy and stuff like that. So reading it so many years later is kind of fascinating.
1: What I like about this particular joke, and I don't know what the intentions behind it were, but to me, those specific two things that you keyed in on, the sensitive 90s guy thing and the politically correct thing, read to me less as making fun of the concepts than of putting a pin in the fact that you can adopt the superficial language of those things while Utterly, utterly failing to grasp the intent or point behind it, which is, is what's happening and what the joke is with Guido in, in both of those circumstances.
0: Fair point, yeah. Well, back at headquarters, the team is just bickering about how the horrible day went, and Polaris tells Alex that he's too serious. He's being like his brother. I mean, look at you. You wear your headgear all the time. You're getting like the guy in Doonesbury who always wears his helmet.
1: Oh my God, we have a canonical Doonesbury reference. I mean, we've had one before, but like explicitly and by name. And I want to talk about this because, you know, initially I was like, nah, because like BD and Alex, but then I remembered something really, really important. Oh, so for the record, the guy in Doonesbury who always wears his helmet is BD. He was a football star at Walden College. He was career military for a long time before eventually being injured in Iraq. He's become a much more interesting character over the years. He was, he was, he was kind of a running gag in the early days. And this is the part, you know, I, I had trouble making that connection until I remembered one of my favorite weird little throwaway details about BD, which is that the reason he went to Vietnam is that he volunteered. And the reason he volunteered to go to Vietnam was to get out of writing a term paper.
0: It all comes together.
1: It does. It's, it's my, my red string map has suddenly coalesced into... It's, it's just, it's spelling something out. There are letters. I, I can see them there. There's an A. There's, there's a B. Is this going to be the alphabet? No, it skips one. D. A, B, D. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was, that was maybe uncalled for, but I don't care. I'm proud of it. And I'm happy. And I got to use my exhaustive and obnoxious Dunesbury knowledge for good. And it was directly relevant to the show. I've been waiting for this moment my whole life.
0: Well, X-Factor, meanwhile, is interviewing the two Madroxes. Madrasies?
1: I was thinking about that, and I was trying to figure out specifically whether the Age of Apocalypse, plural, is actually the plural for Madrox or just refers to the specific organization, whether they can be the the Madri or the Madri.
0: I don't know. I kind of like Madrasies myself, personally. But each of them claims to be the real Madrox, which, you know, makes sense. Interestingly enough, one of them, the one who's on the team, doesn't remember the fallen angel stories that the one who showed up in the audience of the press conference does. And sure enough, Moira McTaggart, who they call, confirms, yeah, that totally happened. Now, Havoc suggests they get a polygraph expert. Um, The psychology major in me would like to let you know that polygraphs are kind of bullshit and they don't really work, but whatever, it was 1991, nobody knew.
1: See, also, a lot of running problems with Daredevil.
0: Yup. And Val Cooper says she knows one who owes her two favors. The first being that she married him, and the second being that she divorced him. But before anything like that can happen, it is time, we can't go too long without them, for more villains watching over monitors. I should note that meanwhile,
1: in the background, Professor Vic Chalker has built a mutant-killing robot suit, but screwed up the measurements and is having trouble getting into it.
0: And it is time, of course, for more Watching Villains. A shadowy dude says that after using his ricochet powers on Quicksilver and Matrix, next up is Guido. And that takes us into number 74, Politically Incorrect.
1: So X-Factor is largely a slice-of-life comic. It's what a bunch of dysfunctional weirdos do when they're not saving the world. A little bit in the vein of Fraction and I as Hawkeye, kind of, maybe in keeping with this tone, opens with shadowy figure lurking on the Washington Monument and waiting for Strong Guy, but quickly moves away from that and on to the team's weird sex dreams and an enthusiastically destructive racquetball game. So what does X-Factor dream about? Well, Strong Guy dreams something about Kim Baster and a movie that I haven't seen.
0: Polaris dreams about Magneto or at least somebody with his hair color wearing his clothes. We don't know what
1: Madrox dreams. It's not relevant because the gag is about there being two of him.
0: Pietro dreams about emotional reconciliation with his estranged wife. Aw.
1: And Alex has a dream that at least somewhat involves Lorna because he says her name aloud and is overheard by...
0: Rain, who's not having any dreams at the moment because she's busy lurking at the foot of Alex's bed and getting irate when she hears Lorna's name.
1: Yeah, so this is super creepy. But man, I mentioned loving Strowman's take on Polaris's hair. Strowman's take on Rain in general is so neat. She looks... Eldritch. She looks like a chaotic fairy tale creature who's in the process of making a dodgy deal with a mortal.
0: Yeah, she's been working on her half-wolf, half-human form this whole time because, you know, she can't go fully human, but she wants to look as human as she can. And the way that manifests here works so well. She's seductive. She's sympathetic. She almost looks more human as she crouches at the foot of Havoc's bed wearing this bathrobe. And she also looks young. Like, there's just this sadness to the character as you realize that she feels this way not because she wants to, but because she genetically has to. But for now, it's time for more watching of everybody through monitors.
1: Yes, uh, Sinister's shady ally, this is the one who was identified or who identified himself at the beginning of the issue as Ricochet, as distinct from Rita, I assume, is meeting with Sinister in a room full of monitors that's behind his breakfast nook. Because, really, that's how all houses are built in the D.C. area, I
0: think. I feel pretty okay about that. I think that's real-life canon. Also, apparently, Ricochet is a senator with a wife, a kid, and presidential ambitions. So that's a whole thing.
1: Senator Ricochet. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Back at X-Factor, Rain's done being creepy for the moment. She's continuing to try to figure out how to get as close to human as she can without reverting to the mutate conditioning
1: But there's not much time for that because Val's ex-husband, the polygraph expert, is here. This is Edmund Atkinson. Um, He's a very amicable guy. He's Val's ex-husband. He's also named after, I guess, Blackadder characters.
0: Well, specifically Edmund Blackadder and Rowan Atkinson, the actor who plays him. But he sets up his polygraph equipment to polygraph the multiple men. Multiples man. Multiples men.
1: And the team splits up because while he needs to deal with that, someone is on the Washington Monument and is calling out Strong Guy for a fight. So Havoc, Strong Guy, Polaris, and Quicksilver head out and find themselves embroiled in a conflict with Slab of the Nasty Boys, who introduces himself as follows. I am Slab.
0: I'm a Nasty Boy. Okay. So, I know the Nasty Boys is his team name, but for a first-time reader or just an average bystander, that's just sort of a, oh, oh, I suppose you are a very nasty boy. Is this, like, like a sex thing, or, or what? No. That just brings me back to... Mr. Sinister, if you're nasty.
1: God, I wish he ever said that in canon.
0: Eh, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. But Slab claims that there's a bomb in the Washington Monument and it'll go off unless Guido agrees to fight. So, of course, Quicksilver does one of his party tricks and goes to find the bomb, but he collapses outside the door. Every time he uses his power, it fucks him up more and more.
1: Slab and Strong Guy go at it. Fight. And... Along the way, we get a bit more of Strong Guy's backstory. He's the character who, I don't know if we're really focusing on him, but I think he's definitely the one into whose background we get the most insight over the first arc of this, which makes sense because he is the newest character to ongoing X readers. He's the only one who really hasn't ever been developed in a book. What we learn is that Strong Guy, or well Guido at that point, before he, he was codenamed Strong Guy, was a puny kid. He got picked on all the time, but he started growing when his mutation kicked in. And specifically... His mutation is that he absorbs kinetic energy, but he has to expend it as fast as he absorbs it. We're going to find out why that is and what the consequences are of not doing it much later in the series. For now, all we know is that he absorbs the energy and he can he can push it right back out and fast. So after getting beaten on by Slab for a while, he aims a full-powered punch at his opponent, but Slab dodges and Guido breaks the Washington Monument.
0: Whoops. At which point, a senator, Stephen Shaffron, I wonder who that could be, shows up and demands that X-Factor be arrested.
1: Shaffron, if you haven't already guessed from the fact that he's the only senator who appears in this story, is Ricochet. We've seen him at home with his family before and seen him named in that context, so we know that this is the guy who is in cahoots with Mr. Sinister.
0: Meanwhile, back in polygraph land, it looks like the new Jamie, the one from the audience, might actually be the real deal. There's the whole Fallen Angels thing that was referenced before— and the polygraph agrees. The one on the team is apparently an imposter.
1: Team Jamie has no memory of the Fallen angel stuff. And finally he gives in and lets regular Jamie absorb him. He's just, he's utterly crushed. He's utterly demoralized. And he, he finally just says, screw it, go ahead. Once he's absorbed his apparent dupe, Jamie des- declines the invitation to stay on X-Factor and he heads out to accept a ride from what initially appears to be Edmund but it's actually
0: Mr. Sinister. This raises some questions.
1: First of all, was Edmund a real person whom Sinister was posing as, or did Valerie Cooper actually marry Mr. Sinister? And had she known that it was Mr. Sinister, would that have altered her decision at all?
0: I don't know. I mean, she did divorce him, so I guess there's that.
1: The thing is, I could kind of see them working as like a master manipulator power couple.
0: They would be really good. Man, Val Cooper Evil is really easy to picture and could be pretty awesome. But this stunning revelation takes us to the final double-sized issue of our arc because it's invisible by 25. That means it's double-sized, and Jay and Miles have more notes to take.
1: Damn it, X-Men, damn it. It it is, however, titled The Nasty Boys, so you know it's
0: going to be good. Okay, so the Nasty Boys, they're kind of confusing. Like, shouldn't Sinister have very glam sidekicks instead of kind of gross, weird-looking sidekicks? But the other thing that baffles me is that they've only had five appearances as a full team ever in the comic, all in the early 90s. And based on the fact that they showed up in the cartoon so prominently, you'd think they would have been a bigger deal, but they're totally not.
1: Apparently, too, their name derives from their domestic hygiene. And yeah, the point about Mr. Sinister needing glam sidekicks seems fairly obvious to me. Like... He he gave them a name that clearly should have gone with a late 90s glam band. We've seen his personal aesthetic and how it plays out. And a few of them are really on point and go with it. I think um, most significantly, Ruckus is is very much in line with, with Mr. Sinister's deal. But the rest of them seem to be nasty boys primarily based on their domestic hygiene.
0: It's true. Their apartment is real gross. But the two legitimately glam ones, Ruckus and Ramrod, go out to rob a liquor store.
1: So... It is to the Nasty Boys' super gross apartment that Madrox and Mr. Sinister return. As it turns out, the Madrox who won out, the Madrox who got named as the real Madrox, is actually the fallen angel's dupe. He turned evil, and he decided he wanted to take over, and he managed to absorb the original. We also learn that Senator Shaffron the guy who we've seen referred to as Ricochet, is in fact a mutant.
0: Yeah, he's causing people's powers to mess up sort of psychosomatically. But the thing with Madrox, that bothers me, because what that means is that the Jamie Madrox we grew to know and love in Fallen Angels, the one who in fact had another dupe come out of him and not want to merge back in, he was a jerk the whole time, and that makes me sad because I really like that Madrox. Although I gotta say, I can't blame him for not wanting to get reabsorbed after all that.
1: Was he a jerk the whole time, or did he sort of gradually go evil over and following fallen fallen angels? I get the sense that this isn't so much evil Madrox as chaotic neutral Madrox who just wants to survive at all costs.
0: That's kind of uh, reasonable, yeah, I I totally buy that. But meanwhile, back at X-Factor headquarters, Polaris tries to confront Wolfsbane about Wolfsbane's creepy sleep goblin thing.
1: It's super awkward, but fortunately or unfortunately their nascent conversation is interrupted by Guido, Alex and Pietro who are back from the emergency room after Pietro's collapse and it turns out that there was nothing wrong with Pietro except for stress. The issues were all in his head. They were psychosomatic. And they were a result of the postcard from the evil individual who were just just fucking with his head. And Alex assumes based on this that they are dealing with someone who's turning their powers back on them, who is finding ways to manipulate them. And somehow, entirely independently of the fact that it's already his codename, they decide to refer to this evil individual as Ricochet. And they figure out also that Madrox was probably one of the targets. And so the Madrox they let go is probably actually a duplicate and not the real one.
0: But thankfully, just as we get that revelation as readers, as the characters get that revelation, so does Madrox himself. Because the real one, the one that got absorbed after being told he was a fake, yeah, he sort of reverse absorbs the fake one. It's sort of horrific, especially the way it's drawn, but sure enough, we have our heroic Madrox as the only Madrox standing now.
1: And he reemerges not only in personality, but he when, when he takes back over, he's suddenly wearing the X-Factor costume again, which raises questions involving Madrox's powers and they interact with clothes and what happens to Dupes' clothes when they get reabsorbed and what happens if they change clothes between iterations and a lot of questions that'll never be answered. But where I'm actually going with this is that visually and practically what it reminds me of most of all was Kitty Pride getting absorbed by a werewolf.
0: You know, I can totally see that. I would not have made that connection, but you're absolutely right. Thank you. Although there's less teenage nudity once the unabsorption happens this time around. But Sinister lets Madrox escape, figuring that Madrox, now with his dupes memories built into him, will probably head straight to confront the senator.
1: We get another Vic Chalker interlude. His robot suit finally works, and he can get into it. It's got a large enough compartment for him. But the power cells drain after only a few seconds trapping him inside.
0: Womp womp. So X-Factor tracks down Madrox, and they meet up with him in an epic confrontation with the Nasty Boys, which concludes with Senator Shaffron, the target of Madrox's ire, flying into the air with lightning crackling around him like some kind of awesome Sith Lord.
1: Now, Shaffron is convinced that the American people will
0: appreciate
1: him for his honesty, and he is absolutely mistaken, but he f- swoops off anyway, being terrifying, and I, I appreciate his commitment to this shtick.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Where he swoops off to is his office, where Mr. Sinister is waiting for him.
1: Sinister, as it turns out, is not on Shaffron's side at all. He has been manipulating Shaffron into destroying himself in order to undercut Chaffron's anti-mutant agenda, because if anyone is going to destroy the X-Men, it's going to be Sinister.
0: And so Sinister gives Shaffron a gun, telling him to do the right thing. Shaffron, of course, tries to shoot Sinister... It doesn't work. Sinister just bounces it right back at Shaffron's forehead and down goes the senator.
1: Wait, so Ricochet is literally killed
0: by a Ricochet. Peter David, ladies and gentlemen. I really like the way this works, though. The fact that Mr. Sinister did this incredibly complex plan manipulating multiple layers of people just so he could undo somebody he saw as a potential threat to mutants and thus to his own agenda without ever even being seen. Keep in mind, X-Factor doesn't know that Mr. Sinister is involved. Only the reader does.
1: Well, Madrox presumably does, and he will probably tell the rest of them. We'll see. But Havoc concludes the issue by, by addressing the public and assuring them that X Factor is there to serve and protect the American people, which is, is true at least in intent. They're trying. X Factor, this, this iteration of X Factor tries.
0: They do. So there's our first X-Factor story, and I gotta say, this book, this version of the book starts strong. Now, I know back in the day of the relaunched X-Books, this had the lowest sales. It was the least well-regarded. I gotta say, it holds up so much better than most of the rest of it.
1: You know, that does not surprise me at all. It's such, such a shift tonally from the rest of the line and from a lot of the rest of what was going on in Marvel books at the time. And people who were getting it because they were expecting more of the same would probably have been pretty sorely disappointed.
0: Yeah, uh, agreed. I mean, for us here in 2017, though, it is a delight and a treat to cover, and it's going to stay that way for a while. We don't get as much Peter David and especially as much Larry Stroman as we would like, but there are some damn solid comics at a time when X-Men and Uncanny X-Men are struggling a little bit. Meanwhile, though, you've got questions. Books Cafe blog asks on Tumblr,
1: Hey guys, I know post-Avengers vs. X-Men, suddenly Magic had a weird-looking Final Fantasy VII-style buster sword compared to her more traditional soul sword. Was the aesthetic design change ever explained? Does this have to do with warping by the Phoenix
0: Force, or is she just way more badass in Magic? So the easiest answer is, it looks cool, good enough. But if you're going to come up with an in-plot explanation, here's the best I could personally come up with. During the new X-Men story, X Infernus, Belasco, the one-armed demon who raised young Ilyana, brought Ilyana back to life after the sheep sort of died during Inferno and then again from the legacy virus. But this time, Ilyana lost more of her soul thanks to some shenanigans with Pixie's soul dagger getting pulled out of Ilyana's own soul, kind of. After this, Ilyana was colder and more distant, and after becoming one of the Phoenix Five, like you referenced, Books Cafe blog, we started seeing her with that big damn sword, so... Maybe the decreased quantity of soul she had after all the fiddling by Belasco and Pixie caught up with her and what was left settled on something more aggressive
1: looking? That said, the creative teams and specifically Krasanka who designed it have explicitly said that it just changed because it was a cool new design and presumably if it's an expression of her, it would alter gradually over time anyway.
0: My personal headcanon is that after being one of the Phoenix Five and wearing super dramatic armor for a while and ruling the world, she just got a taste for the dramatic herself and decided to embody that in her new badass-looking sword. Either way.
1: She was literally Queen of Limbo for a long time. She had demon army- armies and this dark child person. I feel like she would have gotten that taste for the dramatic much, much earlier were that the case.
0: Maybe it's cumulative. Like, you get a lot of drama from Limbo, but then even more drama from Phoenix, and then you've hit your activation potential for the cellular reaction of having your sword change into something that you could barely lift?
1: Oh, like heavy metal
0: poisoning. (laughs) Exactly that. Fucking Papyrus asks on Tumblr, wow, that's a great username. Your most recent episode got me thinking. Bobby dated Opal, Warren dated Charlotte, Hank dated Trish. Jean only dated Scott, right? Rogan Gambit, Storm and Forge. Have the women of X-Men ever dated a civilian? Well, Jean did briefly date the guy who turned
1: into the Cobalt Man in college. But for the most part, the answer to your question is no— And that's something that is not specific to the X-Men. Across publishers and across titles and across media for the most part, something you're going to consistently see is writers and publishers who are reluctant to hook up a male character with a woman more powerful than he is. And the name of this trope, or at least the name of the source of this, is patriarchy in action. That's what's going on. That's what we've got here. There are very, very occasional exceptions. I can't think of any off the top of my head, And this is actually, this is an issue that I have specifically often with writers who decide to hook up Wonder Woman and Superman because they decide that Wonder Woman needs a superpowered boyfriend because I guess Steve Trevor just isn't good enough, that, that Superman also probably needs to be with a superhero, which first of all, falls hard into this trope on the Wonder Woman side. And second of all, is utter bullshit because Lois Lane is a stone cold badass and Superman knows that she is 10 times more the hero than he is.
0: So there. The live-action Tick series actually addressed this. Um, Captain Liberty dates a normal dude, but he's all intimidated because she's got superpowers and he can't really handle it. It's pretty well handled.
1: Yeah, he's kind of an asshole about it. The live-action This is the original live-action Tick series, by the way. I haven't seen the new one yet. But it's really good, and I'd recommend
0: watching it. It's like Seinfeld, but, you know, good. <laughs> and also about superheroes. But yeah, listeners, help us out. Like, are we missing any examples in the X universe? Like, I know there are some female Teen Titans that date normal dudes, but we can't really think of any in X-Men. So if you can, let us know in the comments.
1: And especially not specifically long-running relationships, not just one or two dates. Meanwhile, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. We exist thanks to you all. And some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and concepts. Today, I believe I am handing the mic to the one and only Nathaniel Essex, or Mr. Sinister, if you're nasty.
0: Some might call my schemes unnecessarily complex. I fear they are unable to appreciate elegance. As Senator Chaffron, Ricochet, was hoist upon his own scheming petard, so too shall Isabel McMahon's careful plans be turned against her with a multifaceted subtlety. So too shall Carl Conway McGuire's hopes and dreams be dashed from the silent but flamboyant shadows." My webs may be spun of a thousand thousand threads, but flies like Isabel and Carl shall be drained dry before they even realize they are caught. It's as if fate itself is sinister. And we'll move from there to the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: Tiffany Alexander. You put all your ducks so carefully in a row, every variable accounted for, Every pop culture reference choreographed with the utmost care. Too bad you didn't think of the one thing that could throw a wrench in the gears. John Hall and his mutant ability to turn neat rows of ducks into a legion of mutiny-minded, web-footed rebels. I hope you like the taste of failure and duck feathers. And with that, Jay and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and
0: Portland, Oregon and is produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Uncanny X-Men continues... And almost no one survives the experience. (laughs)